Turn your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles. We'll begin by reading the first eight verses, so we'll really get into the text proper next week. I do want to set a little bit of a stage here. Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times, the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the remotest part of the earth. Let's keep going. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. What a start to a book. I'm glad you're here for the Acts of the Apostles, the gospel on the move. It is true that within the New Testament, what we would call the canon, meaning the collection of authoritative books in the New Testament of these 27 books, that Acts is different from any of the other works. We were to talk about Gospels. You know the four that we have, three synoptic Gospels that are very similar to each other. And then John that adds a little bit of a different Uh, perspective, but still all four of those are gospels. And then we've got all these letters, 13 that Paul wrote, and then some general epistles by other authors. We've got letters by Peter and letters by John. And so there's a lot of epistles in the New Testament. We have that apocalypse at the end, which some would say is a letter. But when it comes to the history of the people of God, how the church was birthed, how it was formed, how we get these communities of faith. It is this work and this work alone that gives us that information. In fact, I would actually argue if you were just introducing somebody to the New Testament, this might be the best place to actually start. Because it is here that you begin to get a framework for the reading of all the rest of the New Testament. Well, you might say, Pastor, why wouldn't you start in the Gospels? Well, it's okay if you want to start in the Gospels. But I would argue that you're about to see in a few weeks when Peter gets up 
on that day of Pentecost and the fiery tongues are among them, he stands up and he preaches the gospel that that occurs, that event occurs before any gospel is ever penned. So if you ask the question, where do we find the foundational beliefs of the apostles, what they really taught, believed, were willing to die for, what they thought about Jesus, who he was, and what he did, you're going to get it in a couple of weeks, and that sermon happens before Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and certainly before John ever pins a gospel. It is here in these early sermons by Peter, there's another one when they heal the lame man going into the temple and people gather and he says, you're amazed that he's healed, but let me preach Jesus. And then, so there you begin to see what it is exactly that Peter, the prince of apostles, believed about Jesus, who he was and what he did and how that impacts our life and how we respond to the event of Jesus's presence, his death and his resurrection. Before we have any story in Luke or Matthew, you have Peter standing up and preaching. So it's here in Acts that you get this foundational, I call it apostles theology, what you can say what the apostles believed this foundation from which we build our understanding of the rest of the New Testament. It's it's right here in Acts. So if you'll stay with me and come and be faithful to the study in Acts, it can really revolutionize the way that you read and understand all the other books of the New Testament. For example, if you just start reading Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, And you don't know how that church started, where it's located, who the members are, what the tensions are there, what the good things are there, then how do you understand Philippians unless you know that Paul started that church? And as we go through the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find out, and I'm just using that one for example, that he goes to Macedonia, Macedonia, he's led by the Spirit to go to Macedonia, and when he gets there, there's not even enough Jewish males to have a, a synagogue, and so he goes down by the river, you remember, and there's a lady there by the name of Lydia who sells purple cloth or purple dye. He leads her to Jesus. She's a woman of wealth. She's very generous. And thus, when you read how generous the church at Philippi is, you ought to be thinking, Lydia's written another check. That's that's, that's kind of what's going on there. Lydia's written another check. Thank God for Lydia. But if you don't know Lydia, then you're not keeping account of the balance of the books in Acts. Or, you know, that, that church is made up. You say, well, you got Lydia there in her household because you'll learn that her whole household is baptized. But if you stay with Paul on this journey in Acts through Philippi, then you learn that he's thrown in jail and there's a, a jailer there and he's in the middle of the prison and they're singing hymns and there's an earthquake and Paul and missionary company get loose and the Philippian jailer runs in and says... Man, I need some of this Jesus stuff. What I got to do to be on your team? What must I do to be saved? And then you'll learn that Paul baptized the Philippian jailer and his family. Now we have Lydia and Lydia's family. 
And then you also know that there was a girl that was demon-possessed, and she was making all sorts of profits for her master, and that Paul was trying to preach, and that demon within her kept interrupting his preaching, saying, I know who you are, and I know who you represent. And Paul had had it, and he turned around and said, get out of her. And, well, Paul got in trouble. That's how he ended up in jail, because they had lost their prophet center when they lost the demon out of the girl who could speak and foresee with the demon. And, and so, well, being delivered, surely she's in that church. So now we have Lydia and her family, the Philippian jailer and his family, a, a girl that used to be possessed by demons, and now we know who we have in the church in Philippi. So when we read, open up the book of Philippians, whenever you study that, you're going to go, yeah, yeah, I know these people. I, I know all about how that church got started. You see? Or, or, or we could do that again, couldn't we? We could do that for Corinth. We could do that for Ephesus. We could do that for all these places where Paul travels. And we certainly could do it for Syria, Antioch, and what's going on there. And so the reality is, how do you possibly understand Paul's epistle to these churches if you don't understand, first, the apostles' theology in Acts, and then how the churches got started and their makeup and their ethnic diversity and that makeup. And so here's what happens. When a church, Paul starts the churches in Acts, when they start having trouble, we'll call that an occasion. They write, Paul, we're having trouble with this and that, and they're saying this, and what do you think? Then Paul takes what the apostles taught and preached Peter and himself, and he applies it to the occasion and the people in that city, let's say Philippi, and thus you have apostle theology plus an occasion in a particular place with particular people, and thus you produce the book of Philippians. You with me? So you can't get Philippians if you don't know Acts. I'm not sure you can get the, the Gospels if you don't know Acts because really it's kind of nice to know it's one of those movies that you kind of watch the end and then you can go back but it is here in acts that we get all of those things and you know acts wasn't a natural thing to write we're grateful to luke for writing it i didn't mean to let a cat out of a bag but luke wrote it but we're grateful to luke for for writing it because it wasn't a natural thing to do I mean, a lot of people felt like they better record what Jesus did and taught. And so we end up with four gospels, at least four in our canon. There's more out there, uh, not, not considered authentic, but four that were considered authentic by the church. And then we got all these letters in the, in the New Testament. So writing a gospel about the life of Jesus or writing a, a letter to a particular occasion and place seemed to be natural things to do but you know Paul didn't write the Acts of the Apostles and and no one else felt compelled to write about this but it is Luke who feels compelled and thank goodness that he does to give us this important pivotal book you see you have Jesus the church and then the particular letters to the church and the New Testament. So it wasn't a regular thing to do. It is unusual to do so. So if you'll put your seatbelt on, get ready to go through Acts, I think that if you will do some studying a little bit between Sunday nights, in fact, go back and read what we've read or read ahead and be ready, that it could really revolutionize how you read and understand all the 27 books, the other 27 books 
of the New Testament. Well, how does Acts begin? What is the purpose of Acts? It begins, as we just read, with the ascension of Jesus. That was the end of Luke. Now, you know that Luke wrote Luke Acts, and he dedicates both of those books to Theophilus, and that the gospel of Luke ends with the ascension of Jesus. And just like you have a commercial break, and it starts kind of back where you were, then it starts us back with the ascension of Jesus. It begins where the gospel of Luke ends. It describes what the church has been waiting for. John the baptizer had said that they would be baptized with water and with the Spirit. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit. And so Jesus ascends that the Spirit can descend and can be upon all of God's people. And so, well, we're going to have the the descending of the Spirit. I know we're Baptists, but we'll make it through it. The Spirit's going to descend here in Acts, and fiery tongues are going to take place, but we'll, we'll walk through it together. And then we'll, we'll learn about how it begins in Jerusalem. Uh, look, at, look at verse 8. This seems to be a, if you had to pick, what is the theme verse uh, of the whole Acts of the Apostles? Here it is. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So we're waiting here in chapter 1 for the Holy Spirit to come. And then what happens after you get the Spirit? You shall be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. What's really neat about 1.8 is that is the outline of the whole book. We're going to start in Jerusalem. We're going to do a little preaching in Judea, and then we're going to get to the Samaritans, and why, then we're going to go to some of these other cities, and we're going to end up where? We're going to end up in Rome. So it'll start in Jerusalem. It'll go to Judea. It will go to Samaria. And then it'll start that rapid movement to Antioch in Syria, the first really mission-minded church. And then we'll go through Asia Minor and Macedonia, and then we'll go to the cultural center of the known world in Greece, including Athens. And then we're going to end at the capital city of the Roman Empire in Rome itself with Paul in prison. So it's quite a journey with the preaching of the gospel. The, the gospel is on the move, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then all the way, all the way to Rome. Now, Luke is a good storyteller. If you like a good storyteller, we're going to have some good stories. We're going to have jailbreaks and earthquakes, and I know it never happened here. People sleeping in church, that doesn't sound exciting, but you drop dead if you sleep in this church, so it's a little bit different. You just get rest when you sleep here. But if you sleep there, especially if you're in the balcony window and it's open and well, you get kind of sleepy, boom, you go out the back window. So it's some exciting stuff in this book. He takes us to the backwater little country towns like Lystra. I mean, you know, that's fun. Kind of, I won't call out small towns in the Panhandle because somebody gets offended and I wouldn't mean to offend, but you know those that are like Lystra around here. You're going to go to Lystra and then you'll go to the cultural center uh, of the intellectual cultural center of that place, uh, Athens. You're going to go to 
Athens, and along the way, we're going to meet some unforgettable characters. Some of them are going to be Jewish, and some of them are going to be Greek, and some of them are going to be noble and royal, and some of them are going to be slaves, and well, it's a master storyteller, Luke, who's going to introduce us to all these people and places. Now, it is the second volume of Luke, and sometimes it is even said in the earliest occasions that the two books travel together. So, you get it. You have the story of Jesus and then the story of the church together. You put them together. In fact, did you know, if you take Luke and Acts and you put them together, just in verbosity, that amounts to more than all of Paul's 13 letters? So the major writer of the New Testament really isn't the Apostle Paul. Now you think Romans is long. Yeah, but Philemon's not very long, you see. And by the time you balance it all out, if you add Acts and Luke together, you have the, the largest writing in the New Testament. And so it is this second volume. And part of the shame is because it's, well, it's not right beside Luke. We begin to think of it as two different volumes when in reality it is really a sort of second chapter to the same book in a lot of, lot of ways. Well, Luke gathers the story of Jesus and the gospel and the story of the early church in the Acts. One of the biggest questions that we're going to see here, and we'll, we'll look at this again in a moment, is how did the Gentiles get into the church? Thank goodness for us, for most of us, that they do. Now, in the Great Commission, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and, and surely if he says it in Matthew, it, it happens in the gatherings of the apostles more than once, I want you to go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them of what nation? All nations, right? And so you would think if right before he ascends, that the commanding word from the crucified and resurrected Jesus, you think he'd have their attention now, right? They saw him crucified, and now he's alive again, and he's, they're fearful of him, and you, you, you get it. There, there's a mystery here in his resurrection. You think after seeing all that, I mean, they'd seen him turn the water into wine and heal the lame and raise the dead, and now they see him crucified and resurrected. He says right before he goes up, go make disciples, baptize, teach them, all nations. Now you think they'd have a meeting and say, we've got, to, we've got to come up with a plan to reach all nations. They act like they're surprised by it when the Gentiles. They're going to have a big council about it, decide if they're for it or against it uh, in Acts 15. You think, well, how could you be against something that Jesus said, this is what you're supposed to be doing? You see how, well, how thick-headed we are, believers. I'm not throwing stones at them, but you get it. They're, you think they would have a, a program. Well, this is what he said for us to do. And then, in fact, in case they missed it, he tells them again here in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power. I want you to start in Jerusalem. Then I, want you to, then I want you to go to Judea, Samaria. And then I want you to go to the remotest part of the earth. I want you to go get everybody with the story of Jesus. And guess what? They still don't get it. In fact, it is persecution that drives them to the places God wants them to go. You're going to see that in the Acts of the Apostles. And that the Gentiles coming into the people of God shouldn't be new. In fact, it was foretold in the Old Testament by the prophets. Okay, here's some major themes in Acts. 
So we're not going to get the text so much tonight. If you're a person that loves the text, all these things will come up again as we go through it. I just want to give you a little bit of a paradigm to use as, as we go through Acts. And so tonight we'll be kind of looking at major themes. So a major theme of Acts is the continuation of God's purpose in history. The continuation of God's purpose in history. Now, we know that in the arrival of the Messiah, the prophets had spoken of him. We had waited for him, longed for him, the people of God had, and then he comes. So God is at work in history and the birth, the virgin birth, the crucifixion, and yes, especially the resurrection of Jesus. And so what he wants us to see is that the church shows the continuation of God's purpose in history and the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. That this thing called church is a continuation of God's plan and also a continuation of what Jesus started and commanded uh, in, in the Great Commission. Well, we, we see that several different times in several different ways. First of all, we can see that it's a continuation of God's purpose in history by the fact that Acts sees the events in the book as the will and the purpose of God, that, that God, God in Acts knows what's going on. Turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, Acts 2, 23. Acts 2, 23, this man, now who's that? That's Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. In other words, Peter preaching says, crucifixion didn't, didn't catch God off guard. That wasn't plan B. That was God's predetermined plan. He knew it before, before you nailed him to the cross and put him to, to, get to death. And in verse 24, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And then he gives you a psalm, Psalm 16, that shows you that what happened with Jesus is not anything unusual or new on God's timetable. It's been on his calendar all along. Do you see that? So God continues his purpose in history, and we see that, first of all, by Acts presenting a God who's really in the know. Secondly, we see that this is a continuation of God's purpose in history by the fact that what's taking place in the church is seen as a fulfillment of Scripture. I'm just going to give you one example. I could give, I could, we could finish up tonight with that. We're not. We're going to go to chapter 2, and we're going to do 1 in verse 17. Now, the Holy Spirit has fallen. They're saying, man, these guys are drunk. And Peter says, no, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They are not drunk. And look what he says in verse 16. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall be at the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit upon all humankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon bond slaves, both men and women. And in those days, I will pour forth my spirit. You see that? So what's taking place in the birth of the church, the tongues of fire, the spirit falling. Why? That's, that's from the prophet Joel. You shouldn't be surprised by that. 
God continues his purpose in history because what's happening with the church was foretold, he's telling us, in the Old Testament. I could do over and over with that, and we'll see them as we come to it. Another way we know that what's happening in Acts is the continuation of God's purpose in history is that, well, the church is directed by God at crucial stages. Uh, often this is the Spirit. Turn to chapter 13 and verse 2. Acts 13, 2. Acts 13, 2. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, you see that? Set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So what happens to Acts, God is getting his way because you see sometimes the Spirit tells them what to do. And as we go through this book, other times we'll have angels speaking and telling them what to do. And other times we'll have a prophet like Agabus tell them what to do. On another occasion, the Lord himself, the crucified and resurrected Lord, is going to tell the church what to do. And, and God finally is in the signs and wonders that happen, the mysterious things that happen in this book. So one major theme is God is still working out his way and purposes in history. Another is the theme of the mission and the message of the book. Acts is a book about mission. It's about that one eight there, beginning in Jerusalem and going to the remotest parts of the earth. It is concerned with this story of a rabbi by the name of Jesus who was crucified and said to be resurrected. He had been put to death by the Jews. And somehow in the powerful story of Jesus, we find our salvation. Now, interestingly enough, in, in Acts. Now, I'm not discounting what Paul says in Romans and other places. I'm thankful for it. And Paul is a star in the Acts of the Apostles. But if you just had Acts of the Apostles, what we learn is that God was at work in this story of Jesus and our salvation comes through his resurrection. In the Acts of the Apostles, it's not as much the crucifixion that is central, though it's certainly there. You know, in Paul, like in Romans, in Romans 3, we get our sins paid for, big words like propitiation and paying for our sins. There's a little bit of that in Acts, but in Acts, it's about resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. That in this power of the resurrection and the exaltation that we find our salvation in fact, we begin the book with an ascension and we find him seated at the right hand as Stephen himself will see him when he's stoned. Well, another main major thing. That's the, the mission, go all the way to Rome. The message in the story of Jesus, especially his resurrection, we find our salvation. Now, another major theme is the gospel progresses not because it's easy, but despite opposition. Turn to chapter 14, verse 22. 14, 22. You're probably pretty close there if you stayed open. This is Paul traveling through, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
So how's this gospel going to spread? Cakewalk? Uh-uh. Going to be, somebody going to roll out the red carpet? Well, be the blood of the saints will be the red on the carpet. You see that? It starts on that first day when, when the Spirit comes. They say, you guys are drunk, and Peter has to get up and preach and defend. No, they're not drunk. It's the power of the Spirit. Joel has spoken about this, and it just continues. And then there's a lame man, and they heal him, and they are warned, you better stop doing stuff like this. They are imprisoned, and they are whipped, and they're in stocks. And throughout the book, there is persecution. In fact, you might say the climax comes when Stephen is stoned dead. Well, the gospel makes its progress. I'm not even going to say despite opposition. I'm going to say through opposition. You see, the opposition causes, if they didn't have the persecution, they were just huddled in Jerusalem and never left. They didn't have a plan. The persecution forced them to get out and, and just preach the gospel wherever they went. Well, Another thing, another major thing, the inclusion of the Gentiles as the people of God. The early church is Jewish. Even Samaritans are included. And then through Acts, it'll kind of go out to Samarians, Samaritans, and then it will kind of go out to God-fearers. God-fearers are, well, they're not circumcised, but they... They worship Yahweh. They're intrigued by the God of the Jews. Like in Acts 10, we'll meet a guy named Cornelius, who's a God-fearer. And so the gospel kind of starts, and then it moves, you see. And then it, and all of a sudden, they have Gentiles, and people say, I don't know if we should let them in or not. They have a discussion about this. Should we let them in? I don't know. You know, they're uncircumcised. Well, should we make them be circumcised? Well, you, you see. So the inclusion of the Gentiles, even though he said, go make disciples of all nations, they're still struggling with it. You know, the ethnic uh, blood runs deep. They, they, they struggle with it. Another thing we see in Acts is the life and organization of the church. Turn to chapter 2 and verse 42. You might ask yourselves, what on earth did the early church do? Everybody wants to be like the early church. Well, let's look at Acts 2.42 and see what they did. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means they were listening to the apostles' preach. And they were having fellowship. Uh, if you doubt what that means, it means they were eating. They were breaking bread. It might be an allusion there to something like the Lord's Supper. And they prayed. You see that? So we, have, we get an idea, we get a, a, a look at what the early church did when they worshiped, and we learn about them, and we learn that in the church that the Spirit is common amongst all the believers, and it does fill the leaders in such a way that they can lead, but all members of the church have the Spirit, and admission to the church is through confession of faith and baptism. We learn that as part of the church as we go through the Acts of the Apostles. And so we learn a lot about, about the church. There are two major characters in the book. The first part of the book, the major character is Peter. The second part of the book, the major character is Paul. So you can divide it in two pieces. It's the, the two apostles that, that are so important. They're all important. They're apostles. But the two that you can hang your hat on, it's Peter in the first part giving us these 
apostle sermons and then Paul traveling and starting the churches in the second part of the book. And so those will be our two major characters. Well, two last things real quick. We've got four minutes and 31 seconds, and so these will be really quick. So I'm watching my clock. If you're watching, listening by way of radio, we're going to make it through this thing. The, the, who wrote the book? Well, if you, I just read to the beginning, and it doesn't say who wrote it. But turn to Acts 16. Let's go to Acts 16.10. And again, I could do this all night, and we won't do this all night because we've got four minutes and seven seconds now. Acts 16.10. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. So right there, you know that the guy who wrote the book is, is with Paul in certain sections of the book. You with me? These are called the we sections of Acts. And as we go through it, we'll look at these we sections. Now, there have been people with a lot of time on their hands who figure out all the places where Paul is during the we sections. And then they take all the names that are listed in the book and they cross off who couldn't be the author. You with me? And so the we that is not named who travel with Paul is Luke. And it doesn't hurt a bit that the earliest church fathers like Irenaeus said very early on, Luke wrote the book. So the great tradition, the long tradition is that Luke wrote the book. We know it from the contents of the we section, vocabulary, medical vocabulary. He is a physician. He is a friend of Paul and he wrote the book. Okay. Last thing. When was the book written? Now, some people try to give it a late date. I don't think you can do that. I think around the early 60s, maybe A.D. 62. And you would say, well, why would you say that? Well, because he tells us about the death of James, the brother of John. He does not tell us about the death of James, the brother of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, died in A.D. 62. If he had known the story about I mean, James is one of his star characters in Acts 15. If he had known about the death of that character, I believe it would have been woven in the book. And so James apparently is still alive. And so sometime before AD 62. Or what about this? The death of Peter is not mentioned. That happens around AD 65. And you know if Peter, Peter's martyrdom had occurred that Luke would have recorded and told us because he told us about other martyrdoms. In fact, he tells us about the time that Peter is almost put to death. And then Paul also around AD 65. And at the end of this book, is Paul dead? No, at the end of this book, Paul's in prison in Rome. So it's before Paul's death and Paul's death is AD 65. And I think even before James, the brother of Jesus' death. So we got some early 60s here uh, because he leaves you hanging. You're, you, it stops where you think, man, I hope Netflix puts out the next series. I hope there's another season. We're sitting here. We're on the end, and we're waiting, and there he is in prison, and it goes off, and you look over and go, wonder what happened. I hope we get to find out. Well, there's not an Acts part two, but we put it together from the rest of the New Testament. But it is a cliffhanger at the end when it closes with Paul in prison. So, come on Sunday nights, bring your friends, put on your jogging shoes. We could, we just might change the way you read, look, and study the New Testament. Let's pray together.
God, if we see anything, we see your providence here. We see you acting through the glorious resurrection of our Jesus. We hear the echoes of the prophet Joel, the songs of the psalmist, the sage advice, the proverbial writer, and we know that all that's happened in Jesus and in the church have been told long ago, and you're not surprised. And Father, we find ourselves as an extension of this book. We are the church. We do preach the apostles' theology. We do go on missions, even this summer, and tell the whole world. And yes, we wait. For Jesus to return, just as we're told in the chapter, that just as he ascended in the clouds, he will return. And then we'll see the sequel. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.